Hello, this is Rabbi Nussan Kaiser of Eitzheim Synagogue in Jacksonville, Florida. In Megillus Esther, the Persian king Achashverosh promotes Haman and elevates him above all the other officers of the kingdom, even commanding that all servants of the king bow to him. Everyone complies but Mordechai, who refuses to bow before Haman, filling Haman with rage to the extent that he conspires to annihilate the Jews of the kingdom in retaliation, and obtains the king's leave to do so. When Haman is invited by Esther to join her for a private banquet attended by no one else but the king, Haman is joyful and exuberant. But the moment he passes Mordechai, and as the Megillah says, Mordechai neither stands nor stirs, Haman becomes infuriated once again. He gathers his wife and his friends, and as the Megillah says, Haman recounts to them the glory of his wealth and of his many sons, and every instance where the king had promoted him and advanced him above the officials and royal servants. Haman says, moreover, Queen Esther invited no one but myself to accompany the king to the banquet that she had prepared, and tomorrow, too, I am invited by her along with the king. But then he says something astounding. Yet all this means nothing to me. Every time I see Mordechai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Reb Chaim Shmulevitz asks a powerful question. It's in Mimer Pebez in the newer edition of Sichas Musr. How are we to understand this? By his own account, Taman has so much to feel good about. How could it all mean nothing just because one Jew, Mordechai, refuses to bow to him? Okay, it's not perfect. It would be great if everyone without exception would bow. But millions of people are bowing to him, giving him exactly what he wants. Is all that worth nothing? Reb Chaim answers that the pursuit of covet honor is unlike the pursuit of physical pleasures, in that there is no point at which one reaches satiety. The glutton, for example, eventually feels completely full and stops eating. Not so with honor. One who pursues honor cannot get enough. And if one drop is missing from his honor pool... He feels as empty as when he started his pursuit, because all honor is hollow and unfulfilling. I'd like to suggest another answer to Rebchaim's question. Haman is elated because of all the honor he receives. He walks the streets, everyone falls to the ground, and he feels great. But the great honor he believes he's receiving is in fact an illusion. The people aren't bowing because they hold Haman in high esteem, but rather, as the Megillah says, Ki chein for this is what the king had commanded concerning him. If the king would command that they bow to a dog, they would have similarly complied. So their bowing to Haman is no expression of respect for Haman, but rather for the king who issued the edict. But Haman prefers to delude himself into believing that he's a man of great power and that all the people respect and admire him. But there's one problem for Haman's illusion. There's one person who regularly reminds him that his honor is not his own. Mordechai. Every time Haman passes Mordechai, and Mordechai doesn't bow, and Haman realizes that there's nothing he can do about it but tattle to the king, which he in fact eventually does, Haman is forced to face his own powerlessness and realize that it's not about him, but about the king. This, I believe, is what Haman means when he says, Yet all this means nothing to me. Lee, to me it means nothing, because it's all an expression of the king's honor and not my own. 
And with this, I believe we can answer another question as well. Haman says, Yet all this means nothing to me every time I see Mordechai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman implies that he only has this problem in Mordechai's presence. All this means nothing to me every time I see Mordechai the Jew. But when Mordechai is out of sight, apparently Haman feels fine. Why? What makes the problem go away with Mordechai? According to this approach, it makes perfect sense. Haman is content in the dream world he inhabits, in which he is an honored and powerful man. But the sight of Mordechai disabuses him of this notion and forces him to face reality. But outside of Mordechai's presence, Haman returns to his comfortable dream. This also, by the way, explains the logic of the response of Haman's wife and friends. Eliminate Mordechai, and you'll alleviate the problem. All of us, to a greater extent or a lesser extent, live in our own imaginations. We may imagine ourselves to be greater than we are, wiser than we are, kinder than we are, more observant of mitzvahs than we are, and we take great pride and comfort in our imaginary images of ourselves. Yet facing the sometimes hard reality of what we really are is the first step toward improving ourselves. I wish everyone a freilich and purim. 